you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn near the back of them to the first letter of John. We looked last week at chapter 1, the first four verses, and this week I'd like us to look at chapter 1, verse 5, through the first two verses of chapter 2. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 John 1, beginning at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this evening that you would meet us in your word, that you would remind us of who you are and how we have fellowship with you. Bless us, O Lord, even in this time. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We're back once again looking at John's first letter to the churches. John is writing this letter because there is heterodoxy afoot. There is heresy rearing its ugly head. John wants us to understand what it means to truly know God, to truly know Jesus, and to live a life of following Jesus. There are many who are introducing all sorts of errors. Specifically, this evening, we're going to look at the errors that have been introduced with respect to sin. As some have been teaching in John's day, even as they do in our day, that sin is not important or that they are without sin. And John uses very clear, very repetitive language to make it obvious to us what God has spoken about himself and about sin. You see, John wants us to understand and to know the reality of the world and of sin and of fellowship with God so that we might have true fellowship with God, so that we might actually walk with him, not just merely think we are walking with him. And so he begins here in our passage in verse 5 with the message of God. And that message is simple but profound. 
It is that God is light. You see, John is writing this letter so that we would have fellowship with him. He's also writing this letter so that we would have fellowship with God. And so in order for us to have this kind of fellowship, we need to know what John is certain of so that we can be certain as well, so that we might have a true and living fellowship with God. And John understands that fellowship begins with knowledge. You have to know someone to truly have fellowship with them. Just think back to any married couple that you have ever known. Isn't it true that the longer they have known one another, the more deeply they are in fellowship with each other? The more they're able to know each other's needs and wants. They're able to even finish each other's sentences because they have taken the time to get to know one another well. You see, that kind of love and fellowship does not come in a vacuum. It comes from a purposeful attempt to get to know someone else. We see this even in the rest of our families and in our neighborhoods. If we are going to have good relationships with others, we must take the time to know them as they truly are. Not as we would like them to be. I, mean, I would like my neighbor to be someone who mows my lawn every week. But liking that doesn't make it so. And I shouldn't expect to see him fire up his mower and come into my yard. I need to understand who he is, where he has come from, what he's like so that we have a point of contact and can have fellowship with each other. And John gives us that point of contact with God. He says that God is light. A simple statement, but one that is profound. It means, first and foremost, that God is holy. He is pure. He is without sin. If you think about the purity of light, how light dispels darkness, how light brings comfort in the midst of crisis. Light is something we long to see. And God is that kind of light. He is comforting. He is holy. He is good. God is all that we would expect Him to be. And John lets us know this, that we would be encouraged. Because of who God is, we can know Him and we can trust Him. But there is something else that we associate with light very often, don't we? Light is an assistance to us, isn't it? Have you ever tried to do much of anything in the dark? Even walk around the house? Have you ever tried to operate a machine or a device in the dark? Have you ever even tried to find a t-shirt or some clothing in the dark? No. If you've dressed yourself in the dark, you might know that you'd come out matching, well, let's just say not quite so. We need light to help us to live our lives. It is something that brings us not only comfort, but it brings us ability and help and assistance. And this is true of God. God, because of who He is, shows us our need of God. He is everything that we need. He is indeed light. And John emphasizes this point by making the opposite statement as well. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. 
You see, John wants to emphasize for us the exact nature of God. He wants there to be no doubt in our mind. Far too often in the world, people take up a duality. Something is both light and dark. Loud and silent. And John says that's not how God is. There may be others who seek to portray God this way. As sometimes light, but having portions of darkness. As sometimes being helpful, but oftentimes being cruel. And John says that's not the God that I know and have fellowship with. He is always light. In Him is no darkness at all. Now what a great comfort that is to us. Because you see, we don't have to live very long to know that we walk in darkness at times, don't we? We have trials, we have tribulations, we have difficulties that are in our path. And if we are not careful, we can attribute what is bad and wicked to God. After all, if our doctrine tells us that God is sovereign, that anything that comes to us, whether it is good or bad, must come from God, and God must have it out for us. But John says that's not true. There's not one small bit of darkness in God. We can never blame Him for our troubles. He is always the one who is our source of help and health and life. This is who God is, and if we understand who God is, then we can have a true relationship with Him. We can be open with Him. We can bring Him our needs, our fears, and our hurts. Because we know He is there to help us. This is the message about who God is. And this is (coughs) important because, you see, we do have wickedness in the world. We have evil in our lives. We have sin all around us and even within us. And so often if we do not understand who God is, we begin to make up things about sin. John tackles this head on here in our passage. He says there are three false claims, three denials of sin that people make over and over. First, they say that sin does not matter. Second, they say that there is no sin. There's no such thing as sin. And third, they claim that they have not sinned. Now these were lies directly propagated by those in the churches in John's day. But all we have to do is turn on the television, is open a magazine or a newspaper, and we see these same denials, these same lies here in our present day. The first thing that John exposes as a lie is the claim that sin does not matter. Look with me at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You see, there is this claim that comes out that we can have fellowship with God regardless of our own sin. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter what affronts we bring to a holy God. We can still be right with God. Now, this is... After all, a part of the modern church. There are certain things that we want to just pass over to declare they don't really matter too much to God. You know, it is interesting because one of the main divisions of the Protestant church from the Roman Catholic church 
was this theological disagreement or argument about sin. The Roman Catholic Church had sought to categorize sin into really important sins and don't really worry about them sins. Now, they had theological categories for those, mortal and venial, but that's the substance of it. There were certain sins that you could get away with. It's where we get the concept that we think about of a little white lie. A lie that's so small it it doesn't even really count as a lie. It may as well be the truth. But you see, we've come to a point now in our own day where there are certain sins that we don't want to confront, that we don't want to give up, that we don't want others to hold us accountable for. And so we think we can live a present and persistent life in these sins and have fellowship with God. Now, John will tell us later that it is not that we cannot have fellowship with God if we sin ever. Because if we say we have no sin, we're liars. But John uses very particular language here. He says, if we walk in darkness. Oftentimes the scripture uses this phrase, walk, to describe a way of life. It is the total substance of how we live. It is the way people would describe us to others. We might walk in the way of a workaholic. We might walk in the way of a vacationer. We might walk in the way of someone who is bitter. It describes our life and how we live. And what John is saying is, if we walk, if our way of life is persistently seeking out the darkness, seeking out sin, going away from the light, which is God, then how can we expect to have fellowship with Him? If God is light... How can we want darkness and want to be in darkness all the time and have fellowship with Him? The other thing we see about this is that it is in the present tense if we are walking now in darkness. If we are unwilling to abandon our sin. If we are unwilling to flee or repent from sin. Then we cannot have true fellowship with God. You know, there are certain kinds of sins that just wrap themselves around us, don't they? Habitual sins. They take hard rooting out. They require sometimes very invasive spiritual surgery. And what John is telling us is that we must confront our sin. We cannot wave it away with a hand. We cannot say, well, God will love me anyway. Far too often we see in Christians' lives blatant sin that is waved away with the phrase, well, I just feel God's okay with this now. I feel like I'm in a good place. While the scripture clearly states that God says you are not in a good place, that you are under His wrath, that you are performing wickedness, You see, this is a lie, John says. We lie and we do not practice the truth. Do not seek a safe harbor in a cliched phrase, nobody's perfect. Do not excuse away your sin that you know you need to repent of by saying, well, you know, everybody has something. John says, if we want to have fellowship with God, we must be clear and realistic about our sin. 
Because you see, if we say sin does not matter, then we take lightly the nature of God. We don't say that God is light. We take lightly the wickedness of sin, of what it does, and we take lightly the nature of true fellowship. And the solution is not to wave our hands at sin. The solution is found in verse 7. It is to walk in the light as He is in the light. And then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. You see, ironically, the solution for sin is to treat it with great seriousness. And because of that, to work to practice righteousness, to walk in the light, to be close to God, to be close to Jesus. And this doesn't mean that we don't ever sin. Because if we sin... The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from sin. The second denial that comes up both in John's day and in our day is the claim that there is no sin. It's a claim that sin doesn't exist, that there is no original sin, that there isn't even any such thing as a category of sin. Look with me at verse 8. It's another if clause. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, we see this more and more today in our day and age, don't we? How many people do you know that would agree with the statement, man from birth is essentially wicked? Almost no one. We see this all the time as politicians and, and figures and celebrities trot out the statement that, well, man is basically good. And I wonder what televisions they're watching, what news they're reading, who they are associating with. Because sin comes out from a very, very early age. But you see, more and more today, we think that sin doesn't even exist. And we try and replace it. How many Categories of sin in the scripture have been replaced with the designation of a disease. You know, it used to be that when someone was a drunk, they were a drunk. And they were urged to be sober. They weren't told that they had a physiological and mental disease that needed curing by medicine. It used to be that when someone lied, they were called a liar and they were told to speak the truth. It was not said that they had a personality defect or a disease that gave them difficulty speaking things that were realistic. Over and over again we see this. All the categories of what the Bible calls sin and wickedness, we now call diseases that need attention, special provision and cure. We see it even today in the rebellion against creation. Those who rebel against the way that God has created them. And we are now creating a special category of person with special pronouns lest we ever offend anyone who is in rebellion against God. But perhaps the worst of all of this is a removal of sin by calling what is evil good. Think about how much in our world today is evil that is declared to be good. And there is even more coming down the path, isn't there? There are right now today people who are looking to make the abuse of children 
a natural and good thing simply by giving it a different category and name. There are people who want to give theft a good name, claiming that somehow it's beneficial, that somehow violence, random violence, is good for some greater scheme. We want to call evil good. And this is because we want to be freed from sin. And churches are afraid to stand against this tide, to declare with John that evil is evil and that good is good and we ought not to mix the two. And we find out what is good or what is evil from God in His Word. That there is such a thing called sin and that God declares what it is. But the problem is we have gotten so used as a society to doing this that the result is, as John says, it is deception. We are self-deceived. We are unable to say which way is up. We don't know who we are. We don't know our true need. And because of that, we refuse to come to God. I've just described 21st century America in the words of John in the first century. The nature of people does not change. Our culture is the way it is because people wish to redefine sin. But praise be to God, he tells us that the solution is not to hide from sin. Look at verse 9. This if clause is more of a but clause. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, it seems counterintuitive to us that the solution for sin is not to pretend it doesn't exist, but to openly declare that it does and that we have sinned. Not to hide from sin, but to own up to it. Now, that is difficult for us, isn't it? Those of you that are younger or who have been younger know exactly what this is like. When something's broken in the house and mom says, who broke it? No one jumps up and says, ooh, 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 me. I broke it. Right? There's that awkward silence. There's the shifting and the slight pointing at a sibling. Right? We don't want to own up to our sin. But you see, John says, that is the way of defeat. The way of life and cure is to confess our sins. Because if we confess our sins to the one who wishes to hear our confession, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He is faithful because he has promised to forgive confessed sin. That is a promise that you can hold on to. You don't have to wonder, if I own up to this, will God somehow not forgive me and slam me? God has promised in his word, and he is faithful to forgive. And he can be faithful because he can be just in forgiving sin. Because of the work of Jesus. You see, It's just for God to cleanse us from our sin because Jesus has already paid the penalty of sin. So we need not fear. We know that we can be cleansed from sin. The third denial that we see both in our day and in John's day is the statement that we have not sinned. We see this here in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, this is not a denial that sin exists. This is not a denial that sin does not matter. This is an outright denial that I've ever sinned. I don't need to worry about sin because I don't do it. 
I'm a good guy. I'm above all of these things. It's a denial of sinful actions that somehow we have gone beyond sinning. And what it does is it attempts to put the merit on us. And there are so-called Christian preachers and teachers who preach this, that somehow we can get past sinning. Who claim to have gone years without ever having sinned. There's only one problem with that. The moment they make that statement, they've sinned. And I'm sure there's a lot more beyond that. It is a, it is a denial of the reality of their own life, of their own thoughts and actions. You see, this is so broad in scope, John switches tenses. He goes from the present tense to the aorist tense, to a past tense that encompasses a long period of time. It is a state of being, so to speak. He's saying we're beyond sinning. But this is not the reality. We may say it, but that doesn't mean that it's true. We may say we are beyond sin, but that doesn't mean that we can do that kind of action. And some Christians are especially vulnerable to this kind of thinking. They take the truth of the cross and forgiveness and the creation of the new nature to a place that the Bible does not take it. They act as if somehow they are glorified now and that they are beyond sinning and therefore they are beyond judgment or questioning. And it leads to a type of perfectionism that denies the truth of the gospel because the gospel declares that we need Jesus not just once but always. That we need our advocate that we need the one who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. This kind of perfectionism causes pride and envy in some. But to others who are around it, it causes despair. Because think about it. If it were actually true that someone among us could be beyond sinning and would never sin, wouldn't that devastate you? Because you know so obviously that you're not beyond sinning. And then what's wrong with me? Why can't Jesus fix me? What does God have for me? Why can't I be like that person? This kind of teaching is dangerous and deadly. And what John says is it proves that we make God a liar. Because we take the truth of God's word and we ignore it in place of what we would desire to be true. Because the basic biblical truth is that Christians still sin. If you're unsure of that, read through Romans 7 twice this evening, and that will cure you. The Apostle Paul, planter of churches, one who saw the risen Christ, one who was redeemed from a life of murdering and hatred, is struggling within himself with his sin and pleading with the Lord to deal with his sin. You see, the biblical truth is that we still need Jesus. The biblical truth is that the Spirit strives against the flesh. Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. We must struggle against the flesh. We must struggle against sin. To mortify sin. 
Paul writes in Galatians 5, verse 17, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The Christian life is one of daily struggle and accountability, of daily seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord in His kind wisdom has not allowed us to think that we can get to a place where we don't need Him. And sometimes it is our sin that reminds us that we are dependent to the Lord daily. These are three lies about sin that John confronted. They are three lies about sin that will come into your purview because human nature doesn't change. Well, how then, if we know there is sin and there's a reality of sin, how do we deal with sin? John speaks about this in the first two verses of chapter 2. We deal with sin first and foremost by knowing that Jesus is our advocate. Now, John says something that at first blush doesn't make much sense. He's gone on for several verses telling us that we sin. And we have to understand that we sin. And that sin is a reality that we will face. And we must confess our sin and we need Jesus for our sin. And then he says, I'm writing these things so you do not sin. And we wonder, John, did you read what you just wrote? But you see, he did. Because John does not want us to sin. He does not want us to be in darkness. He wants us to know the truth of God's word. He does not want us to be comfortable in our sin. He wants us to have confidence that we can be forgiven. And Jesus is there to give us that confidence. It is not that we have conquered sin. It is that Christ has conquered sin. He is there to give us confidence because He is our advocate. He is the one who stands before the bar of the Father and pleads our case for us. He is the one who is righteous and He pleads His righteousness on our behalf. He pleads our case. Jesus is not some bumbling public defender. He is the perfect, sinless Son of God. And he pleads that our sin is to be forgiven because of what he has done. He is our advocate. Whenever the enemy accuses us, Jesus is there to answer. And this has great practical consequence for you and for me. For when you're having trouble going to sleep because of something you said to someone, and the enemy whispers in your ear, you're not a good friend. No one would want to be your friend. You have a horrible mouth. You think bad thoughts. You're so sinful. I don't know why anyone would have anything to do with you. Understand that you have an advocate. And that advocate is Jesus. And that Jesus answers those charges with his blood. Jesus is our advocate. And then finally, Jesus is more than our advocate. He is also our propitiation. Now, propitiation is a big, hard-to-say word. Because it's big and hard to say, it's been taken out of many translations. And the concept of propitiation has gone out of our vocabulary and our theological understanding. But it is critically important to understand that Jesus is our propitiation. 
Because you see, Jesus does not cause God to simply wink at sin. He does not cause God to forget sin for his sake. No, Jesus is the one who satisfies the wrath of God for sin. There is no wrath left. It is satisfied. That's what a propitiation is. It is an atoning sacrifice. Jesus is the one who has solved the wrath of God. And that gives us hope even when we sin. Because the wrath of God does not abide on us. Not because of who we are or what we have done, but because of who Jesus is and what he has done. We don't need to live in fear anymore of death and the grave. We don't need to live in fear of sickness or of sorrow because Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God. And John reminds us that he is able. He is more than able. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I think we can take this in one of two ways. It either refers to the entire world of all who are under the blood of Christ and who are satisfied. It's not that Jesus has just enough of a sacrifice to barely cover you. No, Jesus covers all those who are redeemed. But I think it even goes beyond that. Because the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ is of such worth that it is of infinite worth to cover all of the sins of all of the world. Now that's different than saying everyone in the world is saved. Because that covering only comes to those who are bought by the blood of Christ. Who have professed their faith in Jesus Christ. Who have had their lives and hearts regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean that somehow God perfectly proportioned the sacrifice of Jesus to only just barely cover the elect. No, Jesus' sacrifice is of infinite worth. And how big is infinite? It's infinite. There's no end to it. There's no border, no boundary. That's what infinite means. And so this gives us great hope. It brings us back to John's declaration that we are not to be afraid of sin, that we are to confess our sin and we are to come out into the light because we have an advocate and that advocate is worthy and he has satisfied the wrath of God. This is great truth that you need from God's word this week because you will be sinned against and you will sin. I guarantee it. The Bible tells me so. But you see, even in the midst of that, we can know that God is light. And that God wants us to walk in the light. And God wants us to be in fellowship with Him. He desires this so greatly that He sent His only Son to die our death upon the cross. That His wrath might be satisfied. That we might be made righteous. And that our sins might be forgiven. Isn't the gospel marvelous and wonderful? It reaches us where we need it most. Even knowing that we are not worthy. This is John's prescription for you this week. That you are to walk in the light. You are to meet the reality and the truth of sin head on. Not to deny it. Not to excuse it. But to seek forgiveness and grace at the cross of Christ.
Let's pray.